0: Hello, everyone. David Coulthard here,
1: DC to the loyal anchors who have been listening to the show through 2023. Uh, The following show was uh, recorded before the sad news of the passing of a good friend, Jules de Ferran, on the 29th of December. Next week, Eddie and I will be paying tribute to the great man. And until then, I hope 2024 has started well for you all. And I wish you health and happiness in the coming year. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard and alongside me virtually once again
2: is the one and only Eddie Jordan. DC, I just thought that maybe my luck had changed for the new year and I might be rid of you but you're still there. But anyway, um, David, this is great and starting a new year like the way it is so we've got lots of things to talk about.
1: We have indeed, we have indeed. So very quickly, um, Happy New Year EJ and second of all, how was the motherland? Did it treat you well? Because you were in Dublin.
2: There's something about Irish Guinness. There's something about Irish pubs. There's something about folklore and lyrics and poets. Everyone was talking about Fairy Tale of New York and Shane McGowan and uh, Sinead O'Connor and singing their songs on Grafton Street, and everyone was rejoicing the fact that we actually were all part of their success because they were very good artists. David, they they felt the people. A lot of some rock stars can move in and move out, but these were different things. Dublin is able to embrace great literary people um, all down the years. We've had some great poets and very very good. Good authors and writers, screenplay actors and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely incredible. You guys have the the gift of the gab. I think is the is the expression. Today on this this episode, we're going to be talking about you know great team pairings and the sort of wingmen that have stood out through either our days of when we were fans of the sport or whether when we were active in the sport. But before I go there, on the music and when you talk about your Shane McGowns and and all these uh, you know incredible. You know Irish artists that have been over time their names individual names stand out, but of course they're only as good as the team of people behind them because the music's not played well or it's not arranged well because presumably they're the the lyricists and they're the the vocal chords that bring it to life, but they don't do it all on their own so why do we why do we sometimes focus on the individual name of the star and and we don't highlight the group or the band behind them?
2: Um, but is that not the way it happens? When you go to the movies, you'll see the name of the leading actor. It'll be uh, Liam Neeson or it'll be this guy or uh, whoever. Um, and that's what draws the people to the crowd. If you go and want to see the, the Rolling Stones, you, you want to see Mick Jagger, don't you? I mean, uh, does anyone know who's the new drummer of the Rolling Stones anymore? People may remember Charlie Watts, who was an absolute legend and a genius. But that's only because I'm a bit of a fan. Whereas um, it is the front man. I mean, you talk of U2. Uh, The band is owned by Larry Mullen, and he was the guy who put it together. He put the ad up in the school to say, look, I'm forming a band. If anyone wants to come and think about joining me, come and join me. So it's always been his band. But, you know, when you talk about U2, you think about Bono, don't you? Or maybe The Edge every now and again. But the, 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 the rhythm section gets, you know, that's why I quite like playing the drums, because it's the rhythm sections. We usually pale into insignificance.
1: Okay. Well, then bringing it to our, our world where our careers met and, and merged and, and we were operational uh, motor racing and the great team pairings. And I guess also to that point, when you think of, you know, I think of uh, Michael Schumacher's great success at Ferrari. Is it Michael Schumacher we give the credit to or do we give the credit to Ferrari? But I guess the answer is that he was alongside Eddie Irvine and Rubens Barrichello. Uh, And Felipe Massa for most of that time, and although Felipe came close to winning a title, not when Michael was there, um, none of none of the teammates you really really remember. So we put the focus on the individual. You're absolutely right, rather than the team. So if I look back through the great team pairings of history, I guess when I first started to really pay attention to Formula One would have been around the sort of PK mantle. Was that '87? then into Prost Senna, you know, I guess that was the was more explosive as team pairings go. But that's where my earliest memories go. What, what, what do you think stands out, or, or certainly in your mind, what were one of the fiery or
2: great team pairings that you can remember through the history of the sport? Well, I think the, the Prost Senna will probably go down as the number one because... They were so brilliantly talented. Um, Prost winning four world titles. Of course, Senna winning a whole heap of titles too. Um, and they were unbelievably quick. Um, I, I want to come back to the thing. You mentioned Michael Schumacher and, and Barrichello and Irvine. I was involved in those contracts uh, with Ferrari. Um, uh, I remember sitting in Lugano trying to beating my brains out trying to, to get um, the lawyers to, to agree to what I was trying to uh, say which was non-productive. And they were trying to tell me that we had to move over for, for Michael, but yet they didn't want to pay us the points money where, for moving over. I'm saying, no, I won't agree to that, and you can't have them. We're not going to drive here. And um, so eventually they agreed, which I thought was a massive coup, um, to give the same points bonus money um, to Eddie as what Michael would got. So therefore there would be no differences between the two and uh, Eddie would therefore uh, wouldn't be grateful for giving up the place but at least it, he wasn't losing money by doing it. Um, 99 you should know that your teammate Hakkinen was involved in a, what was a three way battle for the title and it was Irvine uh, Hakkinen and to a lesser extent um, Frenzen in our car um, but Frenzen leading the race in, in in Nürburgring had he won that race when He he switched the wrong buttons. I mean, honestly, how he turned that car off, I just thought, oh no, he had 20 seconds of a lead. Anyway, the fact is he didn't win the race. So therefore, we went to Suzuka, um, not having the chance to win the championship. But Michael had come back from the accident and you mm, were quite accurate, but not quite on the money when you said that um, these guys didn't win the championships when uh, Michael wasn't there. Michael did come back and, and told everyone that he was coming back to help Eddie Irvine win the championship. He did not do that. He did everything that he could because he didn't want Ferrari to win a championship with a driver other than him. That's what I believe and that's what Irvine believes and, um, you know, the statistics and when you look at the way he handled the race in Suzuka, he did nothing to help Eddie whereas I think Hakkinen was the champion, you were his teammate um, and everyone was happy because I think he was probably the deserved champion. I think Michael was always a difficult teammate because no one really, even though he had Massa, as you rightly say, and Rubens Barrichello and Irvine, he had all great, great wingmen. um, But they all knew what the score was. And I never liked that, I have to tell you.
1: Well, I guess one guy that we didn't mention there who was also a teammate um, is our friend Martin Brundle. And that was really at the beginning of Michael's Formula One Established career at Benetton, and you know Martin ran him hard on on a number of events, and I think that once Michael sort of learned from Martin's experience, uh, he he then sort of upped the ante and and you know made it difficult for Martin to sort of flourish within the team, and probably was instrumental in in
2: helping him no longer be with the team. Uh, he was pretty good at handling threats, wasn't he, Michael? Um, Look, you talk about one of my favourite drivers. Remember um, that uh, in our Formula 3 day, I went to great lengths to sign Martin Martin Brundle. Uh, I thought he had real style, real character and real speed. And he was incredibly unlucky in a way because... Who wants to come up in their maiden year um, in in Formula 3 up against the great uh, Dickie Bennett and uh, and, um, Ayrton Senna? Uh, I mean, that's formidable from both sides. But to his credit, Martin, once he got his head around it and once we got a car working and I think Silverstone was the kicking point Uh, we had Yokohama tyres we decided to run under the uh, the European Championship rather than the British Uh, and Martin went and won it I think Ayrton was a little bit fragile he was unbelievably talented unbelievably quick but a touch fragile in the head once you got into it and I did the most incredible amount of things to to screw him up I mean not letting him out to test because he had paid them money and doing all sorts and I really got under his skin even though I loved the guy um but you know I, I, my commitment was for for Martin Brundle and I it went to the very last race in Thruxton uh there was a point between the two of them and um fair play to Ayrton he won that race we were second and uh, he became the champion then that followed in into into Formula 1 and then who does he team up with you know, Michael Schumacher, I mean, you can't get much better than that in those eras um, than Senna and Schumacher. So I think Martin Brundle was dealt in some ways a a difficult hand because he was always up against, by far, the the biggest favourites and the biggest champions that there were at the time.
1: Yep, yeah, no, no question. Martin went up against um, future champions and, of course, went on to win his, his own world championships in sports cars where he really seemed to flourish.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
3: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Um, What do you think about uh, how we'll look back on, because it's still relatively fresh isn't it the Mark Webber Sebastian Vettel well I guess we're going back to 2008 2012 but still seems fresh in my mind they they had quite a uh, you know explosive relationship that that famous Malaysian race where the call was given for them to bring it home in formation and then only for Seb to overtake Uh, I think we spoke about it actually on on the podcast with uh, Adrian Newey.
2: Multi-21, I wanted to know exactly what it meant. But then there was the big accident, if you remember, was that Turkey? Yeah, the two of them ran into each other. I mean, that must have driven the team and Christians that was mad and then Silverstone when he was you know the great thing Mark is not very shy when he needs to be out there and uh, at Silverstone he was out there and he says not bad for a number two driver and I think uh, he took over your seat or I could yeah. be wrong
1: no well Mark was there when when I was there for, for a couple of years and then Seb Vettel came from Alpha Tower at Toro Rosso excuse me uh, and, and took over over where when I retired but they, when you actually look through the history of the sport you know you had was it Peroni and Villeneuve they were an explosive partnership at Ferrari they fell out and then I think it was uh, was it the following race sadly uh, Gilles Villeneuve lost his life in, in Zolder they, there's never really been what you could call amicable teammates when they've both been let's say evenly matched uh, when, when
2: they've both had a chance of winning Grand Prix, it tends to get a little bit spicy. Are you making reference, in fact, on the basis of what you just said, I'd like to know what is your particular position about you and Mika Hakkinen? Are you saying that he was much better than you or are you saying you are much better than him? Could you enlarge on that there, David? (laughs) Because I'm confused. I I don't know whether you're stroking yourself there or you're stroking him.
1: uh, Neither. Um, (laughs) But look, there's opinions and there's facts and the facts would show Mika was a two-time world champion, which... I was not. So Mika was uh, a better all-round Grand Prix driver than I was. But we had our moments of going wheel to wheel and we had our fallouts. And I think that's the point, really, The, the, the whole thing about trying to discuss the big driver pairings. They tend to be really the biggest management challenge that the team principal, the team owner has when you've got two drivers that really have a chance of of going for victories. So who were the two drivers that you had throughout your your tenure as a, a team
2: owner that you were difficult to manage
1: because they were both at each other's throats?
2: Oh, well I, I would have to say um somebody who now lives in Cape Town and, and we had dinner with, with Adrian the other night and that, that's Ralph Schumacher. Ralph Schumacher and Yarno Trulli. My God, uh, I was so upset with him. Was, it, was he cracking jokes la- all the time, uh, Ralph? Because, you know, I, a German joke is no laughing matter normally. Oh, come on, David. Give them a break. He makes bloody great, better wine than you and I would make. Um, that's for sure. And his hospitality is quite simply staggering. Uh, he's a lovely guy. I'll not have a bad word said about Ralph Schumacher I think he's a real I think gentleman. he's a lovely guy I like Ralph very much I'm are you just sure are you asking, being genuine did he yeah. crack you any one liners Ah, uh, how will I change the subject here quickly? But anyway, the reality is that Jarno and he, despite me shouting and roaring at them in, um, I think it was one of the few races that I, we went to in Argentina, which I loved, by the way. It was a great place. Believe it or not, Gary Anderson always said that the, seven, the 97 car was better than the 98 car. The 97 car was particularly strong, and um, I... Get the impression that Yarno was in second place, but wasn't prepared to give it up for Ralph because he was much quicker. And they came to the hairpin and they ran into each other. I went absolutely ballistic. If you can't imagine uh, any words of, I censor, can imagine. I, of any country, even the most liberal censor in the world would have censored what I said. I was so vicious with them. I told them that they were two total wankers that they didn't deserve to be in the car and I was going to sack them when I got them back out. I'd calmed down then afterwards. When, but I was—I—I I, I never saw the funny side of that because, in, in my opinion, they cost us a uh, one-two. Uh, I know you go on about races that you should or could have won, David, uh, and I, I've always been supportive of what you said, but this is one occasion that um, it was taken away from the two drivers. And Did they crash out? Uh, Ralph finished third in the end. Um, Ralph did finish third, um, which was some salvation from the end, but it was very poor.
1: Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, well, look, I didn't recall that race, and I'm very sorry, but I can imagine. I, I, I Actually, I can only imagine, because I've never seen you that angry,
2: but I've seen you angry, and I can imagine you were off the scale there. We had never won a Grand Prix at this stage, and... Um, We just recently, the previous year, we'd had the pole position with Ralph and with um, Rubens in in Spa and we could feel that things were turning slightly in our favour and it was a matter of getting sponsors and Benson and Hedges came on board and we had a a, a decent chance of getting money from the Deutsche Post and various other things. Um, And I felt really good about the team and we thought we had some brilliant young engineers and so... For them to crash like that was just sinful. I felt there was a very low regard for the team in itself. And I sat them down. I reminded them. I made them, I made them sit for a week. While they repaired the cars in the garage, uh, in, in the factory in Silverstone, I made sure they came to to England, and they had to put in the same amount of hours and times as the mechanics did, because I wanted them to see the pain that they had put on the rest of the team. Not even not not talking about the financial stress or pain, but you know just the aggravation that they put the team through unnecessarily.
1: Well, when you talk about teammates coming together, you know I had couple of comings together with Mika during my time he spun me around in Estoril in Portugal 1996 and there's a photograph of me giving him the bird as I'm facing the wrong way as he passes me so it was always my quick reactions and frustration Um, I had a coming together with him in Austria I think that was in the, it was at 99 when when I spun him around uh, and then unfortunately didn't win the Grand Prix, finished second, which caused a lot of uh, uh, despair within the team. And then we touched briefly at the first corner on Spa, which I then went on to win the race. But other than that, what teammates coming together, Prost and Senna, of course, famously in Suzuka, they then came together in Suzuka when Prost was at Ferrari, what what you've had your teammates come together? What what other big battles can you remember where teammates have
2: basically <laughs> ran into each other? You know, the, the Patrese situation w- when he was with Mansell. Patrese on his day was incredibly quick, but you know Mansell was the darling of Britain, and the, he he could do no wrong as far as the media were concerned. And poor old Ricardo was such a nice gentleman, and. Um, uh, but the battle I remember was obviously uh, the Prost Mansell days uh, coming down the straight. Uh, that that was epic when it when they touched each other. But look, talking about teammates, it's become a big scientific uh, purge at the moment to know exactly what the teams are going to do and your teammates going to do. And I think motor racing is a particularly good example of that because. David, you would have known what Hakkinen was likely to do. And when Dayton comes up to this kind of level of racing, you will be telling him, you need to study what your teammate is likely to do and where he's going to go. Will he go for the inside of the corner mostly or will he stay on the outside? Just small little things that you are prepared mentally to, on the laws of average, what he's likely to do. And then you are well prepared for
1: it. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Some drivers you know will not give an inch And some drivers are actually very, let's say, fair. Once you've sort of presented your car and you've got enough of it on the inside, they realise the bigger picture is to lose as least amount of time getting past and then either, you know, try and come back at you or just accept that's the way it is. Some drivers will fight it to the point where you both end up losing time and then your overall race time is affected, you're going to still get past them. And that's what I never understand when some drivers are being lapped, for instance. The best way to be lapped is just to lift slightly on the straight and allow the car to overtake you. It's not to drive offline in a slower corner, picking up dust in your tires. It makes it very difficult for the car that's overtaking you to really commit to the corner because they can't possibly know what you're thinking. And two, as I said, you you end up just messing your tires. So I think there's there's an overall vision of how to run your fastest race, because that ultimately is the best race, is however you get from lights out to checker flag and uh, the path of least resistance. Some guys seem more drawn to incidents and accidents than others. And, you know, those guys, I guess, are expensive for you to have in the team. So as, as an example of a driver from, from the Jordan days that brilliantly fast, but was a bit wayward when it came to wheel to wheel action and the crash damage was quite high for you
2: well he has since gone on to win the indianapolis indy 500 twice and that's takumo sato uh i mean uh if the car came back in with four wheels on it at any given session it was a miracle um he was quick but he never knew why and um he, he, we didn't know why either i have to tell you it was Oh, Jesus, even talking about it, he's the loveliest man on this planet. He's a lovely but guy. Jesus, never have him in one of my cars again, please. <laughs> oh, my God. He crashed at any, every given moment. But such a nice person, you could never be angry with him because he was so apologetic and... So kind and generous, and giving presents to the staff and to Marie and me. I said, "Fuck the presents, just drive the fucking car, will you, man? Stay on the road." And uh, he couldn't do he's, that. He's
1: got. A, he is a lovely man. I'll absolutely say that. But uh, there's a number of drivers that get a rapid reputation of being a bit of a crashers. You know, Andrea the crasherist, the Cesarist, who sadly is no longer with us. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, Grosjean, in his early career in Formula One, got involved in more than his fair share of incidents. You know, we saw it last year, uh, somebody's put together a little stat of all the accident damage, and I think poor Logan Sargent was up there as one of the more expensive drivers. Yeah, I had plenty of crashes myself, I'm not trying to hide from that, but there are those that seem to be very good, very good, very good, oh no, it's all gone wrong.
2: You had the difference you didn't you didn't always crash but you caused a lot of crashes. I mean I'm I'm still on my knees thanking you but I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> I mean Spa, you wiped out the whole grid at the start, blaming poor Eddie Irvine, and then you decided to take on Schumacher. But what you have is an unbelievable... I'm ability. not sure poor Eddie Irvine's the correct uh, description. Very wealthy Eddie Irvine. You, uh, and rightly so, because he's a genius. But you have the ability of always... Which you, I never saw any other driver getting away with that. When you had a crash, most drivers... Uh, listeners you will see them they're in the car and they're shaking their head and then they take their helmet off dc never took his helmet off for fear someone will come out of the bushes and punch him <laughs> because he caused <laughs> he caused so many accidents he realized that someone was going to shoot him or kill him or punch the head off him so he decided the best way out of this is leave me helmet on Well, the truth is, actually, I couldn't afford
1: a custom fit helmet. So with this shape of square head, by the time the helmet went on, it took two people to get it off. I couldn't get it off myself. Let's
2: move on to some listeners' questions, I think. So there's one here, Ethan Ford. Yeah, but before you answer that, please, David, I've got to stop you because tell me, people talking about, there was a lot of situations where Tire management is becoming so goddamn boring for the punters watching it on the television. Um, and um, do you think it's possibly now the time to to bring some competition to the actual manufacturers? So we remember when when Goodyear were there, and then we had the the Bridgestone, and then we had uh, different other manufacturers, and uh, Michelin, of course. And I'm just thinking, do you think the... Pirelli have um, done such a remarkable job that it might be good for them that another competitor be introduced?
1: Competition improves the breed. Competition improves us as human beings. Competition improves goods and services. Competition improves racing. So there is no doubt in my mind that everything would get a little bit better if there was competition, now Pirelli have done a fantastic job of delivering what's been asked of them in terms of where we were with the previous tires, coming with the bigger tires, and there you go—they win every Grand Prix. I, I, I go when when Paul Hembree was there, I'd go and shake his hand and say congratulations and winning the world title at the very first race of the season because that's the only the only people that know they're going to win the championship because they're providing the tyres. So no doubt it would get better. But the the argument that would be put forward would be that it would increase operational costs in having two manufacturers. Uh, and that's factual in as much that you'd have two groups of tyre technicians travelling around the world with all of their tyres. It would mean, I guess, potentially that Uh, there wouldn't be quite so much revenue from the advertising that Pirelli have around the track. Although I can't assume that, or can't presume that it would be impossible for both tire manufacturers to, to advertise in the same way that you've got Mercedes safety cars, and then you've got Aston Martin safety cars. But I just don't think there's a, a desire right now to, to have a tire competition, but I think it would be better. And you know, the other thing it would do sometimes it would be Preley that had the right tyre for the circuit. And sometimes, let's say, for argument's sake, it was Bridgestone would have the right tyre. So you would naturally have this, you know, competitive
2: shift circuit to circuit based on the only thing that touches the ground, which is the tyres. One thing as a team principal, I must tell you, um, David, because I was there in this type of era when there were different manufacturers and... The main manufacturer being whoever, say a Michelin, it would go for the Renault team and it would go for this. And they would pick the teams that they thought could win the championship, uh, naturally enough. And they would pay them accordingly because there would be a very significant budget there. And... um, I don't know how you would get the competition in there without having the free fall of the big money, and I just don't know what's going to happen. So maybe we should just leave that particular question. Incidentally, that came from Alan uh, in Dublin. So, Alan, thank you very much. And uh, Dublin is rocking at the moment, so well done to you. Um, so, DC, there was another question there. If you were a team principal of Coulthard Formula One team and you've decided that you have free choice of everyone except Max, what two drivers would you go for? well i put lewis hamilton in there for sure uh, as
1: as someone that is is just a winning machine when when things are you know when the vehicle is below him and i think for if money wasn't an issue and all that sort of thing I would do one of two things. This is fantasy Formula One. I'd put Fernando alongside him Mm. just to see when we asked the questions about the great rivalries. They didn't really get along when they were teammates back in the McLaren day the first time. But how would it be now? One's, what, 38, 39 in the case of Lewis, and the other's 42. But if it wasn't uh, someone like a Fernando, I'd go for a young, developing uh, rookie uh, to learn off of Lewis for the future, so that could be an Oscar, it could be a
2: Lando, it could be a George, um, you know, Charles. They're all they're all great drivers. Uh, and again, Stephen, thanks for for the question. But um, I'm a huge uh, fan of, of um, Leclerc, and I'll probably have him in there for sure. Lewis would be very hard to overlook. That's for certain time, years, and not necessarily in his favour. But I'd be sort of thinking of further down the road, so therefore I wouldn't have Alonso in there and I wouldn't have Lewis necessarily. Um, And I think you know i have a real soft spot for albon i just think that given the right situations that i think he could really really be mustered. and i would like to see at some stage that he given the chance alongside max because i think he might be a big surprise but that doesn't mean that i'm picking him <laughs> i'm 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 hedging my bets here uh, I, I i'm i'm going for leclerc and, and lando to be honest that would be what the team i would like okay well good to know ej um i think couple of light-hearted ones, just to wrap this up and
1: take us into the uh, the, the beginning of this new year. Uh, you've just been in Dublin. We've got someone asking, uh, what's your favourite pub? Who is it that was asking me that? It was... Uh, 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 oh, Phil. I'm
2: trying to find the... Where is yeah. the chap who asked that question? So the problem is, Sil, if, if you keep looking there, David, why don't you put your glasses on? Are you too vain to put a glass? Oh, on? Oh, yeah, help him put my glasses on. Is that sill or Chill? <laughs> <laughs> no, chill is what still. you're doing at the moment, and um, is. Okay. A, it, I think it's coming from Cyril. Which Do you is own a mostly, pub in Dublin? No, but I've paid enough money over the counter that I probably should own a pub in Dublin. But there are classics, place customers would go mad if somebody came in and tried to paint the wall um they they'd go the friction oh my god why have you done that you've destroyed the pub the pub has to be the same as it was 75 years ago when they say ah oh, Ronnie Drew used to come in here and and this guy used to come in and uh, that guy but the reason why I like O'Donoghue's was that's where the Dubliner started the Bag is in, it was different because the Bag Inn In was great for pints but that's where Thin Lizzy came from. Van Morrison all the guys started with maybe 50, 70, 80 100 people in the bar all just drinking pints and listening to the music whereas O'Donohues was very much folk and that's where the Dubliners came from Ronnie Drew and the history and, and we talked about Shane McCown over the last couple of weeks but that he was the difference he, he was not a great singer but he was a great and I urge People, please, please, please download the words Sitting on Top of the World. That song is amazing because all those words that he said are so relevant to today, and um, it's a great set of lyrics. And so he goes down as a poet, just like a bit like Bobby Dylan. Um, um, uh, These guys are inspirations to all of us, and when we lose them, um, I think we'll have lost a major part of our life.
1: Yep, nice words, EJ. Uh, Fun fact. There's more pubs in Ireland per capita than any other country in the world. You, you're a land of the pub, and why pub, am I? Uh, why dwellers. am I not
2: even remotely surprised? <laughs> right.
1: We're wrapping up this episode. It's been absolutely wonderful. That's it for today. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us, and we will of course be back next week. And remember to follow Formula for Success on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can find us on social media with the handle at F1 for Success. Well, EJ, it's a happy new year for me and
2: I'll leave it to you to wish all our listeners, our anchors, the very same. 2024 is going to be huge in motor racing, but it's got to be huge for so many different people. We wish them every success. And uh, DC, we've got lots and lots of new talent and lots and lots of big celebrities to come on board. And we'll have fun and uh, recalling their interests in motorsport and motor racing, Formula One or any aspect of motor racing. And uh, to our anchors, indeed, I concur with you. A mega, mega, mega new year to each and every one of them.
3: it.